Revelation chapter 12, as we're working our way, line upon line, precept upon precept, through the word of God. Now, there are some passages of scripture that, at face value, you've, you won't understand it. You've got to study it. And God meant it to be that way. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 2 that a wise man searches for wisdom like a buried treasure. So God, in his grace, has given much wisdom to people, like the cookies on the bottom shelf that even the babies can crawl over and get into. So the gospel is simple, and much of the Bible is a narrative form that you can just read it and understand it. But there's parts of the Bible that you won't get until you study it out. And the book of Revelation is sort of a final exam, if you would, on the other 65 books of the Bible. So most of the book of Revelation is found in the other 65 books of the Bible. And it's sort of writing it for a second time and putting all the various pieces of the puzzle throughout the Bible together in one picture, showing us a picture of the end times, of the last days, in particular of the tribulation period. So we start out here in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Revelation. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now some people try to jump in here and start guessing what this is. That's always an unwise way of taking any literature, especially the Bible. Typically, when you have a difficult passage, if you read the passages around it, in particular the whole chapter and sometimes chapters before it and around it, and then secondly, find where else the same type of thing is mentioned else in the Bible, elsewhere in the Bible. You can find it and go there, and it'll explain itself. So let's read on through to the first six verses, and let's look at three different figures that, I, that become very evident who they are. The one is a woman, the first is a child, and then the dragon. So there's this woman who has the sun and the moon under her feet and uh, a garland of 12 stars behind her head. And in verse 2, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now some would jump in here and say, Oh, that's Mary giving birth to Jesus and so forth. Hang on. In verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, or crowns, on those seven heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed there for 1,260 days. And we saw that earlier in chapter 11, the two witnesses last week who had a ministry for 1,260 days. Now, sort of the platform for all end times prophecy is the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, they were in Babylon. And thus, they're using the Babylonian calendar, which had a 360-day, rather than our Julian calendar, which is 165 and a quarter days. And every four years, we have a leap year, which isn't very scientific when you really think about it. But... uh, 
So the Babylonian calendar, if you work on a 360-day year, that comes out to a three-and-a-half-year period. And the chapter 11 was talking about these two witnesses for the first three-and-a-half years. This now is going to be talking about the second three-and-a-half years of the seven-year tribulation period. Well, as I read these first six verses, one thing that should have popped out at you is in verse 5. It says this child will rule all nations, so that's the whole world, with a rod of iron. And then this child was caught up to God and to his throne. Also, this child was caught up to God and his throne, not necessarily in that order. So, if you know, again, the Old Testament scripture, one scripture that would just pop out to you, a very well-known passage in Psalms 2 talking about Christ and his thousand-year millennial reign upon the earth. And in Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9, it says this, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So the whole planet unto the sun, the Lord, Yahweh, it's the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, uh, Jehovah Witnesses translate that Jehovah, which is a bad transliteration. I won't get into that. But uh, it's the Lord says to his son, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. And then notice verse 9 here of Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. So in that thousand year millennial reign, God will put up with nothing. The Lord Jesus, as he rules, if somebody's in disobedient, like a big giant iron rod. He strikes the clay pot. He won't allow any wickedness whatsoever to go on. If there's any question in your mind, this is referring to Jesus. The child is Jesus in Revelation 19. We're going to get there. But in verse 15 and 16, it says, now out of his mouth goes sharp, a sharp sword and with it, he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thighs a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that narrows it down to one. (laughs) Okay. And this is a picture here as we look on a revelation of Jesus coming and the very end of the tribulation period. And how does he come again with that rod of iron? And so the child is clearly Jesus. And we know in Acts chapter 1, there is he was raised from the dead. He was on the Mount of Olives. He got caught up into heaven. And the angel stood there and said, what are you looking at? They said, we're looking at Jesus. And he said, well, he's gone. And then in the book of Revelation, we saw Jesus again as the Lamb of God. Where? Upon the throne. And so uh, this is the child. So who is the woman? As we go on in the book of Revelation, the woman is attacked during the tribulation period. And... She, much of her is put to death by the Antichrist. So as we go on in the book of Revelation, it clearly cannot be Mary giving birth to Jesus. So who is this woman? Well, it gives us the clear indicator right there. She's clothed with the sun and the moon and then the stars. And now we ask ourselves, where else in the Bible, in particular, where's the first time in the Bible such a thing is is mentioned? It's called the first mention. And that takes us to Genesis 37. Remember Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors? He kept having these dreams. And one of the dreams he had there in Genesis 37, verse 9 through 11, he dreamed that he, he, 
as he told his dad and his brothers, his family, he said, look, I have a dream, another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, Joseph would be the 12th star, bowed down to me. And he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Sure enough, in a few years in Egypt, when Joseph with the second command, they all would come and bow before him, not realizing it was him, but indeed they did. And his brothers envied him, but the father just kept the matter in his mind or hid it away in his heart. Going, what, what does this mean? And so in this picture, this is talking about Israel and his wife and his boys and all of them together, the sun, the moon, and the stars, collectively make up the nation of Israel. And of course, the 11 stars, because Joseph himself would be the 12th star, the 12th son. So the woman here, I believe, is Israel. And as we go through the Old Testament, on many occasions, God refers to Israel, the nation of Israel, as the woman. Matter of fact, you can write it down and study it out later. But in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 through 6, Isaiah 66, verse 7, it talks about the woman giving birth to a son, just like here. Jeremiah 3.20, Ezekiel 16, verse 8 through 14, and Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Each of these is the woman and this woman who sometimes is an adulteress, sometimes is a prostitute because Israel were going after other gods. But he continued, give reference, uh, sometimes uh, himself as the husband and Israel, this woman as his bride. And uh, in many different analogies, it's common throughout the scripture. And so I believe very clearly here, this woman indeed is the nation of Israel. The child is Jesus. And this child is born from the Jews. The Jews have given us a precious gift to the whole world, Jesus Christ. In Genesis 12, that's what he said to Abraham. I will make you Great, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing, Abraham, in you, Genesis 12, 3, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And indeed, through the Jews, all the nations of the earth have been blessed through a Savior that's been given, Jesus Christ. And it says there in verse 3, there's another sign that appeared. And this time, it's this great fiery red dragon. Now, without any question, this is Satan, because skip on over to verse 9 real quick. We'll come back to it in a minute. But look at verse 9 there of Revelation 12, chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So it's pretty clear the dragon here is Satan. Now, in verse 3, the devil here has... These seven heads with ten horns and then, ten, then seven crowns on the seven heads. Guys, in great detail, we're going to go into this in Revelation chapter 13, in Revelation chapter 17. And when we're there, we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 7, also Daniel chapter 2. But in that, the Bible tells us that one of the things we can look for in the last times is the rebirth of the Roman Empire. And indeed, today, with the European Union, we do indeed see the rebirth, the unification of the geographical location of once was the great Roman Empire. From that, right now, you have the European uh, Union, 
which is about 25 different countries. But very clearly in the book of Daniel, it says it's going to break down into 10 kingdoms. Now, as we look at it today, you see very, very separatist countries. To imagine them unifying into one kingdom is mind-boggling. But that's what's going to happen. And from that, the Antichrist is going to raise up, and through deception and flattery, he's going to take out three of the ten, and then he's going to rule all of them. He's going to rule all ten countries, but ten of the kingdoms, or three of the ten, will become one under the Antichrist. So now you get seven, and he will rule that Roman Empire, that revived Roman Empire. And then the next thing he's going to do is go to Babylon, which is Iraq today. And of course, Babylon will be a huge city. It's going to go all the way to the ocean. Right now, the ancient site of Babylon is just a little south of Baghdad. It's a city called Nazaria, Iraq. And it's going to explode and be a huge city. And it's going to become the economic center of the world. Sort of like America's the economic center of the world now. Babylon will become the economic center of the world. And then it'll become the religious center of the world. And this is what we're looking at now on the horizon. So it's interesting. There's three main geographical locations when you look at end times. One is Israel. They're a nation. It's an amazing thing. Jerusalem in particular is the focal point. Until 1967, Jerusalem was not under uh, the power of the Jews until very, very recent history. The other thing we look at is Europe, to look at the revival of the Roman Empire. And it's happening now. The other thing we look at is Babylon and the rebirth of the ancient city of Babylon. We're going to look at that in chapter 17, in particular 18 and 19 of the book of Revelation. And all of these things are the focal point of entire planet Earth right now. And this is exactly. So this uh, couple of weeks we're going to be having our prophecy update. And I guarantee you, you're going to be completely convinced. The Lord's coming is very, very soon. When you look at the signs of the time. Well, it tells us here that this dragon, this Satan, that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Now, throughout the scriptures, you have the stars as, as, as another name of angels. Um, for example, in Job 38, verse 4 through 7, it talks about how Uh, at the foundations of the earth when God was making the world. And it says that very thing, that the stars were there singing together at creation. Also in Isaiah 14, uh, it's a description of Satan himself. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Many translations translate this son of the morning. But it normally will have a little asterisk and say, look over in the footnotes, literally star. It literally, it's star of the morning. That's what it should be, or the morning star. That's one of the titles of Satan. But you've been cut down to the ground. You've weakened the nations. And then also in Revelation 9.1, a verse we looked at, when the fifth uh, trumpet blasted, I saw the star fallen from heaven. That was Satan falling uh, from heaven. And so uh, we're going to see here in a minute in verse 9 that he talks about Satan and his angels. So, Here, I believe this is a reference, the one-third of the angels that have fallen with Satan when he was cast down, when he raised himself up, and he took them with him. They sided with Satan. They went along. And so these are what today we call demons that are in the world. 
And it's a reference back to this one third of these angels that were also came with Satan and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. And notice to devour her child in verse four as soon as it was born. That takes us to the Christmas story, doesn't it? Remember there in Matthew, the Magi came and they following the star and they came to Israel. Oh, it's in Israel where the king's going to be born. And they went to Herod and they said, hey, where's the king going to be born? You having a son? No, I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, he got the Jewish scribes together and, and said, hey, guys, you know anything about this? And they said, yeah, in Bethlehem. So the Magi said, thanks. They went over to Bethlehem and Herod said, hey, as soon as you find him, come back so I can also give him homage. Lie. He didn't want any competition. He was going to have him killed. Well, God spoke to those magi supernaturally and said, don't go back to Herod. And they just left town. But Herod didn't know how old the boy was or whether he was a baby or one years old. So just to make absolute certain, he ordered that two-year-olds and under all male children should be killed, slaughtered in Bethlehem. And again, we know that was Herod in his envy, making sure he didn't have competition. But we really know behind the scenes, we don't fight against flesh and blood, do we? We know Satan was the puppeteer trying to destroy the Christ. Why? Because all the way through the Bible, it says one day that Satan will be crushed. How? Under the feet of Jesus. And so throughout all of history, you have Satan trying to wipe out the Jewish race. Remember back in Egypt, the midwives were ordered to what? Take all the male children and kill them, throwing them into the Nile and killing them or killing them as soon as they're born. You have, uh, after that, throughout history, you have the Babylonians destroying them, scattering them throughout the world. Then the, before that, the Assyrians. You have the whole book of Esther. It's talking about during the time uh, of the Persian rule. And this guy by the name of Haman, who's second in command to Artaxerxes, the, the great uh, world leader at that time, and he manipulates to make a law on the books that on a certain day you can kill every Jew worldwide and if you kill him you get, to, you get all his house you get his money you get whatever he has if you kill him to give an incentive and Esther the queen had to step up and save the population of the Jews worldwide we can go through history and again you can see it the Egyptians the Assyrians the Babylonians the Persians the Greeks under the Greeks when Alexander died, it was broken into four kingdoms. And one of the kingdom was the Seleucid Empire, which his capital was uh, the country of Syria there. Thus, they had other areas. And make a long story short, we're going to actually talk about it later. It comes out of Daniel 7. Uh, but, and then also Daniel chapter 11. But this guy by the name of Artaxerxes comes in, or um, Antiochus of Epiphanes, excuse me. Antiochus of Epiphanes comes in and he slaughters the Jews. And we have that under the, the Greek Empire. And then, of course, we come into modern day. We have the Germans and Hitler. Why does, why does Hitler hate the Jews? Why does he see them as the scum of the earth? Why does he see them as rats that are infesting the country that need to be exterminated so you don't get the diseases of the Jews? And, and so he just literally starts wiping them out, trying to completely make them extinct off the planet. Why is he so possessed? Well, we know it's satanically that Satan is trying to destroy them. And then, of course, today we have the Arabs, in particular the Muslim Arabs worldwide, 
who want to see the Jews annihilated. It's not that they don't want the Jews in Israel. If there were no Jews in Israel, guess what? (laughs) They would want to kill them everywhere else. They don't want them in existence. And uh, the, the Muslims hated the Jews thousands of years before Israel ever became a nation again in 1948. And it's in their hearts to destroy the Jews. Secondly, destroy Christianity and all Christians. And, uh, and so, again, we, we see here that right as soon as the babe was to be born, Satan, this devil, was trying to kill Jesus unsuccessfully. And in verse 5, she was able to bear the male child. The Jews gave forth the Messiah, who is to rule all nations with the rod of iron. That's the millennial period. We'll get there. But before that, he came, as we know. He died. He rose again. He was caught up to heaven, Acts 1-9, and to the throne. Now we're going to go into the second three-and-a-half-year period of the tribulation. The woman fed, fled into the wilderness, which is uh, Selah, which means rock, or Petra, another name for it, where she has a place to prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days, a three-and-a-half-year period, the second three-and-a-half-year period. Now, as we study the scriptures, it tells us in particular that it's in the country of Moab, which is the country of Jordan today, that there's a city made of rock. And sure enough, there's an empty city of rock there today called Petra. It's about 90 miles east and a little bit south of Israel, It's setting empty. It's a city that at one time probably inhabited, they guesstimate, about 1.5 million people. Originally, it's where Esau's family, the Edomites, uh, dwelt. Later on, the Napateans were there and and made very ornate uh, things out of that rock. But in Isaiah chapter 16, it tells us there in the first four verses, it says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah, or Petra, to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Again, Moab is the area of Jordan, the country of modern day country of Jordan today. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the executioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. Oppressors are consumed out of the land. Now, what he's talking about here is what we're going to see in the second part of chapter 12 of Revelation. But we saw last week, the first three and a half years, you have these two prophets that come on the scene. Mighty men of God, I believe it's Elijah and Moses. And for three and a half years, they're indestructible. And if anybody tries to come against them, Fire comes out of their mouth and consumes them. They are putting plagues all over the earth, just like Elijah did, just like Moses did uh, in the Old Testament. And then finally, exactly 1,260 days to the day in their ministry, the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, the beast, the son of perdition, uh, the dragon, the serpent of old, all these names, he shows up and he is able to kill them. Because God says there in chapter 11, we said last week, he gave them a permission for them to no longer be indestructible, and they die. And the whole earth sees it. Now, again, we talked about this. I mean, even a a couple of decades ago, you couldn't imagine how the whole earth 
could see what's going on. Now, right from your cell phone, you can be on the website. And, and right now, there's a temple cam right now on the Welling Wall. So you could get your cell phone there right now. And don't do it, please. But uh, hypothetically only. Uh, you could look on your cell phone and look at the Welling Wall right now. So you'd, it wouldn't matter if you're out in the jungle somewhere in some part of the world. You, there's satellites everywhere. And you can have a TV or satellite phone or whatever. And you can see what's going on. These men are going to die for three days. The whole earth's going to have a big celebration like Christmas, giving each other presents and stuff. But on the third and half day, these guys raised from the dead. A big voice sounds. They go up into heaven. The whole earth sees this. But we also know right after he kills these guys that he goes into the temple of the Jews. He stops all sacrifices. And he goes in and he proclaims himself to be God. Now remember, there's 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. We're going to get into it more in chapter 14. But these are mighty evangelists who are telling the whole world, this isn't the Christ, this is the Antichrist. And he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And, and, and if you don't do what he says, he's going to kill you. And, and I think this is why at least the majority of the Jews don't take the mark of the beast, as we're going to talk about next week here in, in Revelation chapter 13. It's a, it's a great passage for the day after Christmas. Um, <laughs> talking about the mark of the beast. I don't know how that works out. But anyway, the Jews don't. And at that three and a half year mark, the minor prophets tell us that their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to say, oh, Jesus was the Christ and we rejected him. This is the Antichrist. And at the point that, that point, the Antichrist is going to realize they're not worshiping me like I thought. I was their hero. They were ready to bow down and worship me a few days ago, but now they're rejecting me. And it's going to bring this indignation and he's going to start slaughtering them. And in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9, it says two thirds of all the Jews at that point are going to be slaughtered. But yet one third of them will make it into the rock city of Petra. In Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21, it says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. We have in Daniel chapter 11 an incredible detail. It tells us that when the Antichrist is rejected, that second three and a half years, he he slaughters the Jews. As soon as he doesn't have any more Jews to slaughter there within his grasp, he starts slaughtering Jews and Christians worldwide. Interesting, the next place he goes is Egypt. The end of Isaiah 19 tells us that Egypt is God's inheritance and that the Egyptians are Christians. And so he goes into there and he slaughters a bunch of them. He heads up into Africa. I think these are the places that are going to be Christian revivals in the tribulation period. And these nations are going to be saved. He goes, Egypt, uh, as we see, is, is, going to, is a saved nation when, Satan, when Antichrist goes to attack it. Isaiah chapter 19, you can see that. He goes up into Africa, starts attacking that. But then he hears news that the people of the east, China, and the people of the north, Russia, are coming after him. We're going to see in the book of Revelation that he dries up the Euphrates River. God, God dries up the Euphrates River and all these armies come. He turns around and goes to fight them. And where do they all end up meeting? In the Jezreel Valley of Israel today, known as the Valley of Armageddon. There's this battle going on as they're all warned against Antichrist. It's now 1,260 days. The Lord comes back. We come with him and the Lord goes down. And that's where we saw chapter 19 
that the Lord's robes are dripped in blood as he goes in and he fights and the blood rises to the bridle of the horse and so forth in that final battle where the Lord comes and wipes out all the kings of the earth who are fighting against him. And uh, so in Daniel chapter 11, uh, it's interesting what it says about the country of Jordan. In verse 41, it says this, He, referring to the Antichrist, shall also enter the glorious land, Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. You take those three ancient sites, they are all found today inside the modern country of Jordan. And so the country of Jordan is going to become this, I think, a place where all the Christians worldwide are going to be coming. Because your only hope to make it in those last three and a half year period, wherever you're at in the world, is get to the rock city of Petra. Well, the rock city of Petra, there's nothing there. to You can't live there for any length of time unless God supernaturally takes care of you as he's going to do. We don't know how they made it there in that rock city of Petra. Matter of fact, you can see it's exactly what it says it is. It's rock. <laughs> and uh, here's a, a site you can see getting there. There's a narrow place. Sometimes it narrows down to 10 feet, 100 feet, 1,000 feet wall straight up. Uh, you, you can't really get a car through there or anything. Uh, and this is why it was such a stronghold. When enemies tried to attack, they had to come through this little narrow passage and they were easy target to, to hold that city. The Napateans, they carved and ornate things out. And here's again the path as you start heading into it. And, uh, and then you can go and look at the other pictures. And there's uh, all these tunnels that are underneath there that go under uh, this rock. And it's just an amazing place. And God's going to provide there and take care of them for three and a half. So if all these Christians, they get saved in the first three and a half year period, they're going to be told, get over next to Petra, close as you can get. I wouldn't be on the Jewish side. I wouldn't be on the Israel side of Petra, but be on the Jordan side. So probably all these Christians are flooding into Jordan. And it tells us there, when the Antichrist comes to try to attack towards Jordan, that God won't allow it. That's one of the countries that God spares when the Antichrist's wrath begins to get poured out. Well, back in Revelation 12 and verse 7, so at that three and a half year mark, Satan proclaims himself to be God. And at that moment in heaven breaks out this war. In verse 7, it says, the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the, de- with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. Boy, this is a good point. Remember that Satan is a fallen angel. He used to be an angel of God. But he fell. A lot of times people make this mistake. They see the opposite of God is Satan. And they're equals. And God has to try real hard to, you know, keep Satan under control because he's so powerful. Guys, the opposite of Satan is Michael. They're angels. God could sneeze and blow Satan away in a heartbeat. Satan is a little tiny bug that God could squash in a second. He is no match to God. It isn't God is the light and Satan is the dark and and the light and the dark and sometimes even the dark is great and God has to really sweat hard and try to, oh, that was a close one because darkness almost overtook the world. That is not happening, guys. God is so fully in control, not even for a fraction of a second does he not have complete control. And whatever power or whatever 
license Satan has is because God allows it for his own sovereign reasons. And when God's ready, he will squash Satan like a bug. Matter of fact, it says he'll destroy him with the breath of his mouth. He'll just speak the word and he'll, he's going to be cast into hell. But here we see this angelic war going on. When we study through the scriptures, we, we find this to be the case, uh, not just here, but even right now as we're sitting here, there's a war going on above us. It says in Ephesians 6, to, to, as we, as material beings, need to remember that. That we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but we're fighting with an invisible war of principalities and powers. A whole host of wicked beings in the heavenly places. In Daniel chapter 10, we see in verses 12 and 13 that Daniel was praying for the restoration of the children of Israel. And this is Gabriel speaking here in verse 7, the angel Gabriel. And he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. I have come because of your words. Verse 13 now of Daniel 10. Because the prince of the king of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I have had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Talking about this demonic host. And it's interesting because in Ephesians 6 it says we fight against principalities. A principality means a geographical area. For example, the mayor of Chula Vista is over the principality of Chula Vista. Well, these angels, these demonic angels, have broken up planet Earth into principalities. And there's a principality of Persia. And in Daniel 10, right after this, says, and he, we got to go fight because there's a whole nether kingdom. The kings of Persia or of Greece are coming. And it's interesting because as we study on in Revelation, we're going to find the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire are all the spirit of those kingdoms are all found within the Antichrist. And so there's Persia today, which is Iran, and the uh, northern part of Iraq would be considered ancient Persia, where the Kurds are and so forth. But above that, in, the, in a non-physical realm, is also the demonic host of Persia. And there's demonic host over San Diego, trying to bring people to hardness of heart and suicide and depression and, and into immoral life or into drugs or whatever else. There's a spiritual battle going on. It tells us of this same exact battle in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, at that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince. So he himself is this archangel, this great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So Michael's job is he is the angel watching over the Jewish people worldwide. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And that's a continuous description of the tribulation period. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. And so there's this heavenly battle that breaks out, that's sort of the battle of all battles against uh, God's angels once again and Satan's angels And they did not prevail, it says in Revelation 12, 8. That's Satan and his angels. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So it seems here 
that Satan now is taken out of the spiritual realm. That he now is thrust to the earth as a physical being only. Now as we study through the Bible, we, we understand that there's a whole mentality of the spiritual realm that we can't even begin to understand. For example, in Job, it says, when all the sons of God came to report before God, all the angels, that Satan also came and reported, and, him and, and Satan and God started having this conversation. And we say, hold it, how can that happen? Nothing evil can dwell in God's presence. Nothing unholy can dwell in God's presence. Well, in our understanding of things, that's true, but yet it can happen. We see in Zechariah 3 that Satan's there at the right hand of the throne. And in this vision, Joshua, the high priest at that time, is there with, and he's accused, and Satan's accusing and condemning him. I I don't understand all of that. But again, if you don't have space and time to deal with, I mean, Satan could be causing havoc in China and a second later be causing havoc in America. And so, um, again, if there's no space that you have to contend with, or time even, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years a day. And so a lot of the things that we understand about even God is because it's for our help. In other words, they're called anthropomorphic statements. Statements of God that relate to man. The hand of the Lord or the eye of the Lord or uh, those kind of things. Because see, God's a spirit. God's an incorporeal being. He's not a corporeal being. But yet those kind of things. Also, zoomorphic statements are made. The wings of the Lord surround you. Uh, He'll carry us Uh, as the wings of the eagle, those kind of things. Those are all statements that are for us to understand a spirit being when we can't, because we have to have space and time, or we can't think. We can't think in a a, a realm that's outside the physical world. But at this point, Satan, his angels, their wings are clipped, so to speak, and now they're earthbound. That's at least what it appears to me. And in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and power of his Christ have come. And the accuser of our brethren, the slanderer of the believers, who accused them before our God night and day. In other words, without stop, Satan is there in heaven condemning us, accusing us, like he did Job, like he did Joshua and Zechariah 3. He's been doing that about you. And they did not love their lives. Oh, excuse me. As he is, and then he was cast down. But they, the believers, in verse 11, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. I love this. What a key insight this is. Even though Satan was accusing them day and night, even though he was condemning us before the very throne of God day and night, It says that the believers overcame him. In Romans 8, verse 33 and 34, it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In other words, he made us just as if we'd never sinned, as white as snow, without any spot or blemish. Who is the one who condemns? Well, it's Satan, night and day. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So Christ is there as our lawyer on our behalf against all the accusations of Satan, even if they're true accusations. He's there saying, I died for them. And so what gives us the ability to overcome? 
First of all, it's the blood of the Lamb, the cross of Christ. So Satan comes on the scene and he says, you're a wicked sinner (laughs) to condemn us. And we come back and say, yeah, but there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Satan comes and says, but look at that horrible sin. And we say, oh, thanks for pointing that out. And we go, 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sin. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to understand the difference between the condemnation of Satan and the conviction of the Spirit. Because sometimes people throw out the conviction when they should be hanging on to that. Satan comes and condemns and tries to bring us to depression, to bring us to give up, to bring us to a hardness of heart. Until we say, well, forget it. I'm an evil, wicked, horrible person, and I just want to kill myself. Or I'm this evil, wicked sinner, and I can't ever live a holy life, all the other Christians. I give up. God just send me to hell like all the rest of my friends. Who cares? No. I don't care what you think anymore, God. Forget it. Trying to harden our hearts. That's the plan of Satan. Conviction is when God begins to speak the truth, and it, it's a sword. It pierces. But yet, at the same time, there's a loving kindness and tender mercy with it that leads us to repent. It leads us to confess our sins. It leads us to to the throne of God. It leads us to come boldly into that throne of grace and ask for grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Satan's condemnation tries to take us away from God, to harden our hearts against God, against the Bible, against the church, against prayer. But God leads us to say, hey... The righteous man falls seven times. I love that. I would think the Bible would say the righteous man, well, he's righteous. He never falls. That's why he's righteous. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says the righteous man, what? He falls. We're in sinful bodies on a sinful planet, and Satan is sticking his foot out all the time trying to make us fall, and he succeeds. But yet the righteous man falls seven times, but also what? gets up seven times. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses, and then in the Greek it, it would speak, and continues on cleansing us from all sin. You see, even if we're walking perfect in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we are still stumbling, (laughs) So I'm living a Christian life the best I can, and I'm, I'm living a, a life that's pleasing him, but I still need the blood of Christ to cleanse and continue on cleansing me of all my sin. And it does. Jesus on the cross, what did he say? It is what? Finished. That word in the Greek is tetelestai, which means paid in full. When somebody paid off their mortgage, they'd take that piece of paper and they would stamp it, Paid in full. And that's what Christ said. It's already been done. Think about it. When did Christ die for all of your sins? 2,000 years ago, guys. Before you were born. God already knew the end from the beginning. And he already looked into the future. And he saw all of your sins. And he took them. He grabbed them back into this point in time. And he died for them upon the cross. Remember Peter that night said, Lord, everybody else may betray you, but I'll never betray you, not me. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm just looking just a little bit in the future right now. 
I see before tomorrow morning before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Well, how do you know that? I just had to take that sin upon me. I'm walking to the cross here. All of your sins were there. God knows them. And so we're not surprising God now. We're not shocking God now. God has already paid for our sins. And that's the wonderful thing. There's Satan comes and throws his condemnation. We say, Christ already in advance paid. His blood has cleansed me. His blood is cleansing me. And what? His blood will continue to cleanse me. And so thus we, by the blood of the lamb, overcome Satan. And by what? The word of their testimony. Guys, understand how powerful what Christ has done in your life is. A miracle of miracles of miracles is taking your stubborn, rebellious, apathetic heart and made you care. (laughs) Made you care about your sin. Made you care about the things of God. And he made you a new creature in Christ. You can go into all the world and it may be a simple testimony. I was blind and now I see. But that's enough. I love that story in John 14, or in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She says, well, give me some of that water that I may have eternal life. And he says, go get your husband. She goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm single. Go ahead and give it to me. Well, yeah, but you're living with a guy and you've been married five times before. <gasps> I perceive you're a prophet. Wow, great perception there. And then she ran into the village and she told everybody. What did she tell them? A guy offered me water and told me I've been married five times before. It's like, come on. That's in the tabloids every day. Who, what's the great? But they all came out believing. The whole city emptied out, came in out to listen to Jesus. And now they said, not only do we believe because of your word, but we believe because we've heard him ourselves. But yet they became believers from that simple testimony. That simple testimony ripped down the strongholds over that Samaritan city. Later on, Jesus comes through and he goes to a city in Samaria. And they say, we don't want that Jesus guy here. We don't want to hear him. We don't want you to come by here. And so you got to realize that we overcome not only Satan in your life, but at school, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your family's life. When you let them know what Christ has done for you. That I was a sinner. I was going my own way. I was in my doing my own thing, and Christ invaded my life. He loved me. He forgave me. He's my Lord, and my life submitted to him now. But also the testimony is the word of God itself. To not back down from believing the whole word of God. Remember when Satan came and attacked Jesus, and he tempted him there? There was four temptations there in in, in Matthew 4 that, that Satan threw at Jesus. But each time, what did Jesus do? He quoted him a scripture. Think of that. If God Almighty in human flesh overcame Satan by just a word of scripture, how much more that's what we must do. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, it says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome, what? The wicked one. How? Because the word of God abides in you. In 1 John 4, 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
to stand on the word of God and not to back down. That's what Satan's been trying to do from the very beginning. From the inside, he's trying to weaken it. From the outside, he's trying to attack it. Just right in its face, trying to say God's a liar. Isn't that what happened in Genesis 3? The serpent, that serpent of old, Satan comes to Eve, and and what does he say to her? Did God really say, trying to put that little seed of doubt in? Are you sure, God? That's, That's what the liberals today and all the denominations and the universities, they say, oh, I don't know if Jesus really said that. I think the early church said that. I think they added that in the 1500s. I think, I don't think that's really what it meant. Inside, they're trying to weaken. And so these pastors are going to these colleges and seminaries hearing week after week, the Bible's really not accurate. It's not correct. It's not the word of God. It contains the word of God in some places, but not completely. And then they're supposed to graduate with this confidence in preaching the gospel. They're not going to do it. Inside, Satan is weakening the church. On the outside, he's just point blank lying. The Bible doesn't even mention homosexuality. The Bible doesn't say homosexuality is a sin. Show me in the Bible where everybody mentions it. Satan's just lying. Isn't that what he did in Genesis 3? He came and, and he said to the woman, or Eve says to him, oh yeah, we can't eat of that tree. We can't even touch it. She added to the word of God. And Satan said, you will not die. God knows the day you eat of that tree that you'll be equal to him. He doesn't want you to be equal to him. That's what they're saying today. Homosexuality is not a sin. Committing adultery is not a sin. You having sex with your girlfriend because you really love her, that is not a sin. Satan's just point blank blasting the opposite of what God says. Just out and out lying. I don't know. How do you translate the word abomination? (laughs) That's what God says about homosexuality. But then on the other side, Satan's trying to to lie to the world through acting religious. I I saw a sign a while back in one of these gay pride parades that says, God hates fags. Number one, that's an absolute lie from the pit of hell. God loves the homosexual. God loves the adulterer. God loves the liars. That's why God so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son to die. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not rude. God wouldn't call a homosexual a fag. It's rude. He wouldn't do it. So here's Satan in sheep's clothing, acting like a Christian, Equally demonic. It's demonic to say homosexuality is not a sin. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin. Matter of fact, the Bible says it's wonderful. Matter of fact, if you really look at it, I think Jesus was a homosexual. And his partner was the Apostle John and, and so forth, as they try to do. That's an abomination. But on the other hand, it's equally an abomination to say God hates homosexuals or God hates... Fa-. That's equally from Satan. What does the Bible say? God loves the sinner. He hates the sin. Why? Because it destroys you. God doesn't want you to be injured. God doesn't want you to be hurt. Homosexuality is not a sin because God said it. It's a sin, period. God said it because he loves you. And he knows how wicked the heart and the mind of man can be and how corrupt a man can be. And so he gives us a lot of warnings. To say, this is not for me. That's not for me. That's not holy. That's not pure. That's not healthy. That's not good. 
Don't be a part of those fleshly, evil, sinful things. They're going to destroy you. Destroy your mind, destroy your relationships, destroy your family. So God calls them sins because they're sins. (laughs) It's not a sin because God said it. God said it because he loves us and warns us. But yet so many are backing off from the Bible. They're backing off from the word of their testimony because, well, I don't want to cause difficulty here in the workplace, so I just, shh, I just just won't confront it. Well, I I won't mention at school, I don't want to confront the teacher about his lies because he may give me a bad grade in the class. I I just, I'll be a secret Christian. Guys, don't. You are the light of the world. If you're a born-again believer here today, by nature, not by doing anything, by your mere existence, by being a new creature in Christ, you are the light of the world. Don't put your light under the bed. Don't put it under a bushel. Let it shine. Paul says to Timothy, if you live godly in this world, you will be persecuted. And that's what I love here. The reason their testimony worked over Satan, because they did not love their lives to death. They didn't back down. They didn't hide it under the bushel. They stood up with their testimony. They stood with the word of God. And they said, no, I am a Christian, and this is what the Bible does say, and this is what God stands for, and no, I'm not going to back off. I'm not going to try to get along and, 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 and be tolerant in their explanation of tolerant and just let you guys say and do whatever you want. No, because the Bible says you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and I'm not going to back down. And then it says in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. The devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So at this three and a half year period, he realizes, man, I only have three and a half years left. And he goes on a tyrant. This is the third woe. The first woe was when those giant demonic creatures that looked like locusts the size of horses were stinging people and man couldn't die for five months. The second woe was uh, the witnesses for two and a half years and then them being put to death and, and Satan uh, coming in there and putting them to death. This is the third woe now, where Satan goes, he, he realized I had thousands of years to bring man down. Then I had hundreds of years. And then I had decades. And now I have only three and a half years of freedom here to cause havoc on the earth. And so he's going crazy, trying to destroy as much as he can. This is the third woe. And in verse 13, notice what he does. So when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who is the woman again? Israel. And the woman was given two wings of the great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, time and half a time. Another way of saying three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. So God supernaturally starts picking these guys up, having angels pick them up by the collar and taking them off. It's interesting and Exodus 19, that's what he said lovingly. He said, I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you unto myself on the wings of an eagle. I love that. And here we see that once again. Notice what the serpent does. In verse 15, he spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So the Antichrist there in Jerusalem is killing all the Jews he can. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24? If you're on your rooftop, don't go back in your house. Just jump off your roof and start running. If you're out in the field, don't even bother to run over to the tree and get your jacket. Run. 
Run to Petra. You got 90 miles to go. Pray it's not in winter. It can be wet and slippery and snow. It can be difficult. Pray it's not on the Sabbath because the Mosaic law is going to be reinstituted during that time. They'll put you to death for trying to travel uh, beyond just a, a little ways. Especially if you're in a car or on a bike or something, they'll shoot you down. Pray you're not pregnant. It's going to be difficult. But he says, get there as quick as you can. As soon as you see the abomination of desolation take place, he says in Matthew 24, verse 15 to 21, then get going and get out of there. And so here at point, Satan supernaturally opens his mouth and causes like a big giant flood to come and it's drowning all of the Jews. And God counters it by opening up the earth and causing the water to go down into this crevice. And those on the other side of that crevice make it onto Petra, which is only one third. And then in verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So after he can't find any more in Israel, again, Daniel chapter 12, he goes up to Egypt, devours, goes up into Africa, hears, turns around, comes back from the east and the north, ends up in the valley of Armageddon, and the end of the, the story. And so, you know, as we look at this passage here today, I do believe that there's, that God brought some of you here today to hear that very encouraging word. That we are victorious because of the blood of the Lamb. And you might be here today and God's brought you because you are being held under the guilt of your sin right now. Right now, you're being oppressed by Satan and he's holding you down through the vices and through the guilt, through the depression, through the condemnation. He's trying to destroy you. And the word of God to you today is come unto Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open that door and come, let me come in. Jesus says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow. In every case, the word is come. Come to the Lord. If you will draw near unto God, what? He will draw near unto you. And so today, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want the guilt of your sin taken away, if you want Christ right now to write your name down in the book of life and give you heaven forever and ever, if you want today to leave here knowing that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven, if the rapture happened right now, you would go to heaven, then you need to give your life to him today. Let's all bow our heads. If you're here today saying, that's me. I need to be forgiven. I need Christ to come into my life. Just lift your hand right now and say, Brian, pray for me. That's me. I need to, don't care what anybody else thinks around you. Don't care what your mom or dad or your friends or your brother or your sister or maybe you saw somebody across the way from school or work. To stand before God, you can't care what anybody else thinks. The question is, do you need to be forgiven today? Do you need to be made right with God today? Just lift your hand up real quick. You can put it right back down. God bless you. Yes, a number of you. So precious. There might be some of you here today that are saying, you know, I once walked with God. I consider myself a Christian. But honestly, I'm not walking in obedience. I'm not living a life right now as Christ would have me to live. And I want to rededicate my life today. I want to leave here today with the renewed confidence that I am the Christian I should be. I need my sins forgiven. I need to get back on that narrow road. Would you pray for me? Just lift your hands up right now. Yes, a number of you, again, it's just beautiful. 
Lord, you know the hearts of all of these. And you see right now these who have said that very thing. God, I need you today. By the blood of the lamb, I need victory today. I need to overcome the demonic realm and Satan fighting against me in my own sinful life. Lord, touch these hearts right now. Jesus also said this, if you will humble yourself, I can then lift you up. And the way I'm going to ask you to humble yourself today is to come, get out of your seat and come and stand right here in front. There was a number of you who did it. And guys, you've come this far, follow through all the way and say, that's me. I'm going to come right now. Let's all stand up and come on down. They're already coming. Thank you, Lord. Right now, I don't care what anybody else thinks. God's touched my heart. I'm coming today. Get out of your seat and come forward right now. Rededicate your life. Surrender your life to the Lord right now. We're going to sing this song one time. This is your opportunity. Make your way right now. You lifted your hands. Come on down right now. Lord leads me to repentance. Lord, on my desire. Once your sin's forgiven, you want to be made right with God. Don't let your pride, don't let Satan rip you off. Make your way now and say, God, it's me. I'm coming to be made right with you. Yes, a number of you. Just come on over, right on over. Lord, you see these here who have boldly jumped up and said, I'm running to that throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help me today. And and right now as you've come here today, whether it's giving your life to the Lord for the first time or rededicating your life, just cry out to God. And let's all as a family here today pray to make these here feel comfortable. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner, but I know you love this sinner. You sent your son to die for me, to take away all my sin, to die and to raise again, that I might have life. I come to you now and give my whole self to you. Take my life, my hands, my feet, my whole being is yours. Take it. From this day forward is for me to live is for you. For your will, your wants, your desire. I give myself to you. Give me a hunger for your word and a hunger for prayer to seek after you. And Lord, bless all those who have heard your word today in truth. As you said, you would send your word and heal us. Thank you, Lord. You said you would wash us in the water of your word. Thank you, Lord. And just continue to speak to us throughout the day. Let us keep munching on this fresh loaf of bread you've given us to glorify yourself. And thank you again. We know all of heaven is rejoicing. When one child who is lost is found, all of heaven rejoices. And we thank you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. You came forward. Thank you, Lord. Thank you today, God. So great. You came forward today. Just want to take a moment of your time. Hey, the rest of you, before you go, find somebody you don't know. Really, honestly, do this. Find somebody you don't know. Get their name and one thing you can pray for them throughout the week. And even if this is your first time, meet somebody new around you and get to know. I know it's uncomfortable. You can write me a nasty letter saying, don't ever do that again. But today, do it. God bless you.